With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Dunblane and Hungerford massacres were two of the most devastating gun-related tragedies in the UK, leaving behind a trail of heartbreak and trauma. But behind the victims and the statistics lie the stories of the victims, the survivors, and the heroes who risked their lives to save others. In today's episode, we're going to tell the story of the brave souls who fought to save the children in the Dunblane primary shooting. Today, we're going to tell their story. And through these stories, we'll gain a deeper understanding of the impact of gun violence and the importance of fighting for a safer future. Join us today as we shed light on these unspeakable tragedies and honor the memories of those who were lost. Yes, hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist today, because uh, apparently one mass shooting is not enough. Dave, who wrote today's episode, has decided to roll two into one. I think because it's a larger idea about the change to gun laws in the UK and what that led to and all of that stuff, so I don't think we're going to get too political. I probably instructed Dave not to get too political, because uh, I don't like doing political. Anyway, um, let's just jump in, shall we? The format of this show is... Uh, I've never read this before. I am, of course, familiar with these. I'm British myself. These are really very famous. I think one of these is the deadliest mass shooting uh, in UK history, I believe. Fortunately, it was a very long time ago. Uh, 1990s, I believe. 1980s, perhaps. Anyway, um, thanks, Dave, for writing it. Let's just jump in. Ready? I'm ready. Before we get started, I just wanted to let everybody know that today's episode will follow a slightly different format than usual, as we'll be covering two separate crimes. As the gun reform debate rages on in the US, I thought it would be interesting to cover two of the worst gun-related crimes in the UK, as well as the subsequent law changes that these crimes brought about, and whether or not those reforms were effective. So without further ado, let's get into the first story. On the 19th of August 1987, Susan Godfrey was traveling to the birthday party of one of her grandparents with her two small children, when at the recommendation of her father, she stopped at the Savanake Forest for a picnic. This recommendation uh, would be one that her father would regret for the rest of his life. Susan would never make it to the birthday party, nor would she enjoy a quiet, relaxed picnic in the forest with her children. The events that took place over the rest of that day would briefly turn the sleepy town of Hungerford, a place that the majority of people living in the UK have never heard of, into the most talked about place in the world. Unbeknownst to Susan, just a few meters away from where she parked her car, dressed in military camouflage gear and carrying several weapons, including an AK-47 assault rifle and a Veressa pistol, stood the man who would not only end her life, but the lives of 15 other people, and would be the responsible for severely injuring 15 more. How did he get an AK-47? I, I don't remember what the changes to the gun laws in the UK were, but surely you couldn't just have an AK-47 even before these crimes. Who was Michael Ryan? Born on the 18th of May 1960, Michael Robert Ryan was the only child of Alfred and Dorothy Ryan. Known to the locals as a quiet and morose individual, Ryan had no real friends except for his mother. Although he was frequently bullied at school due to a small stature, he never fought back or protested, preferring instead to keep his emotions hidden. After leaving school, he developed a fascination with firearms and created an entirely fictitious persona for himself. He would tell anybody who would listen that he was a former paratrooper and he now owned a gun shop. Although everybody who lived in the area knew that Ryan had spent almost his entire life unemployed, he was known to be quite irate if his lies were at all questioned, and so people just let him get on with it. After all, he wasn't hurting anybody. He was just Michael, the crazy bullshitter from down the pub. Every town has a Michael. The man who claims to be exceptionally wealthy, but seems to spend an inordinate amount of time drinking cider in the park. There could be the former Hells Angel who actually rides a 49cc moped or the expert knife fighter who could barely hold his cutlery. Ryan was Hungerford's version of this guy. Yeah, people do this. It's like, <laughs> do people really believe? Like, you're just going to carry on with that lie? Like, yeah, nah, it's just I'm extremely wealthy. I just I just love sipping on cider, wearing my smelly clothes when, I sh when everyone else is at work because I'm rich. 
Okay. During his late teens, he obtained the necessary firearm certificates required to own a shotgun, assault rifle, and a number of handguns, and these became his obsession. So apparently you could get a far, you could get a certificate in order to own an assault rifle. That's insane. Even handguns are extremely illegal in the UK. Like the police don't even have them. And I I had never I've never I'd never hold held a like a like a nine millimeter gun, you know, that sort of gun, like a handgun. Uh, until I left the UK. And then I went to a shooting range abroad and shot one. I was like, oh, that's a new experience. But I've shot like all sorts of rifles and shotguns, of course, because those are fairly common. But handguns, assault rifles, not so much. In fact, not at all. So a quick recap to check against the list of warning signs. No friends? Check. Unhealthy relationship with his mother? Check. Living in a fantasy world? Check. An obsession with firearms? Oh, yes. Look, as I'm sure regular listeners will have already noticed, the signs here are not good. The only one we're missing is, like, has a history of torturing animals, and then we'd be like, we'd be all in. As he became more and more obsessed with the exciting life that he'd created for himself within the confines of his own head, he began to engage in even stranger behavior. According to the locals, it was not uncommon for Ryan to be seen creeping around in Savanake Forest dressed in military attire. While several people marked this behavior as unusual, nobody was ever seriously concerned. After all, it was just Michael, a bit weird, but essentially harmless. After the events that took place on that fateful day, police and psychologists alike came to believe Ryan would covertly follow members of the public when they were out for walks, and that he would do this to help fulfill sexual fantasies in which he was a hunter stalking his prey. If you're having sexual fantasies where you're a hunter stalking your prey, you need to see a psychiatrist. You need to see, you need to talk to someone about this and get on the right sort of medication or into the right sort of therapy because that's not a normal sexual thing. It's like, what's your uh, sexual fantasy? Like, nurse, something like, I don't know. Like, what do people have? And then it's like, no, 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 my sexual fantasy is hunting women. <laughs> Bro, no. Sadly, in a turn of... <laughs> It's like, Simon, don't kink shame. Yo, when someone's kink is hunting women in a forest, <laughs> that's not okay. Sadly, in a turn of events that's only too familiar, the day came when imagining and fantasizing was no longer enough. And that's why you have to see somebody. You know, that's why you have to talk to someone who's going to be like, well, let's just try and get you away from that a little bit. And maybe we could do that with therapy. Maybe we could do it with drugs. But it's best to try, okay? Breaking point. It's unclear as to what finally caused Ryan to snap, although a few sources claimed that earlier that morning he'd had an argument with his mother. Whatever the reasons, on that beautiful morning, at a well-known picnic spot in the forest, he finally lost what was left of his self-control, and a monster was born. As Susan sat on a pig- picnic blanket near her car with, two children, with her two children, Hannah aged four and James aged two, Ryan approached the family, pointed a 9mm Beretta pistol directly at Susan, and instructed her to strap both of the children back into their car seats. Although terrified, Susan complied, and as Ryan picked up the picnic blanket and instructed her to walk in front of him into the woods, she told her children to wait there for her. She'll be back soon. What happened next is not entirely clear. However, the police believe that after Ryan walked Susan a short way into the forest, he attempted to sexually assault her, and when she resisted, he shot her 13 times and covered her with the picnic blanket. This done, he walked back to the silver Vauxhall Astra GTE, which was parked close to Susan's car, and without a word to the two children still in the car seats, he drove off in the direction of Hungerford. Okay, so at least he got back in his car and left the children there. Quite understandably, these two children were terrified. They had heard multiple gunshots, and seeing Ryan return without their mother only caused them to become more concerned. After some time, it's difficult to be specific, as we are, after all, relying on the testimony of a four-year-old child, had her unbuckled the seatbelts, and they went in search of their mother. In the only bit of luck that these poor children had that day, they began searching in the wrong direction and so did not come across the bullet-riddled body of their mother. Instead, they ran into Myra Rose, who was out walking in the forest. Although she did not immediately believe young Hannah when she told her that the mother had been shot, she did agree to help look for her. Susan's body would later be discovered by a police officer who, upon noticing her abandoned car with both doors open, stopped to investigate. He would find the body about 250 yards away from the car. The two children would be reunited with their father later that day. <sighs> it's, it's tough, man. Like, my kids are this age. And I don't know what to say, really. Afternoon of Carnage. After leaving the site of his first murder, Ryan drove to Foxfield Petrol Station not far from Hungerford. Once there, he proceeded to fill his car with a 5-litre petrol can. 
Mrs. Kakub Dean, the wife of the owner, recognized Ran as a regular customer, but would later describe him as not particularly nice or chatty. The only reason she paid any attention to him was that he was purchasing a lot more fuel than usual. Whilst her attention was diverted, as she served another regular customer, Ian George, Orion went back to the boot of his car and retrieved a semi-automatic rifle. When she finished serving George, she looked out the back window and was horrified to see Ryan standing outside and pointing the rifle directly at her. The quickness with which she reacted in that instant undoubtedly saved her life. Yeah, you hit the deck, man. If someone's pointing a gun at you, just get down. As she ducked beneath the counter, Ryan's bullet shattered the safety glass and ricocheted harmlessly off into the shop. As George fled the scene on his motorbike in order to get help, Ryan burst into the shop and once again pointed his rifle at Dean. Terrified, she begged for her life to be spared, but Ryan reacted as if he could not hear her at all. Absolutely convinced that she was about to die, Dean watched as Ryan pulled the trigger and nothing happened. Apparent, appearing to be slightly confused, he pulled the trigger several more times with the same result before turning around, leaving the shop and driving away. Dean immediately contacted the police, having received a report of an armed robbery from George and were already on their way. After leaving the petrol station, Ryan drove to Hungerford and stopped off at 4 South View, the house that he shared with his mother, whereupon he shot and killed the family dog, changed his clothes, loaded his pockets with ammunition and packed a bag with food and first aid kit before leaving the house and trying to drive away in his car. Sadly, we have no idea what he planned to do, and we'll never find out. It seems logical that having filled up the car and an extra can of fuel, it planned to go on the run or into hiding. Unfortunately for many of the residents of Hungerford, his car wouldn't start. After several attempts to get it going, he angrily leapt from the vehicle before wildly firing five shots into the boot, or the trunk for our American viewers. It was at this point that Ryan appeared to lose what little control he had managed to maintain. Taking the fuel can from the car, he returned to the house, doused everything that he believed would burn with petrol, and set the building ablaze. Leaving his home one final time, Ryan retrieved his beloved gun collection from his car and set off down the street. Quick Farm Murder Now far beyond the reach of any reason, Ryan set off in search of more prey. The next two people, unfortunate enough to be discovered by Ryan, Roland and Sheila Mason, had been his neighbors for many years. According to one source, the two families had been fairly close since the death of Ryan's father, and Sheila was particularly a good friend of her mother's. However, none of this mattered to Ryan. When he came across the couple relaxing in the back garden, he shot Sheila once in the head and Roland six times in the chest, both of them being killed instantly. Marjorie Jackson, one of the individuals who actually survived his attack, was his next target. Drawn to the window by the sound of gunfire, Jackson was staring in shock at her two dead neighbors when Ryan shot at her. Although she was seriously injured, she managed to make it to the phone and called both her husband and the police. While she waited for help to arrive, Ryan ran up and down the street, shooting at anything that moved. Curiously, at this point in his murderous rampage, one surviving eyewitness claims that he shouted to several groups of children that they should get inside where it was safe. This action suggests that he might have been more in control of his mind than some experts would later suggest. He spared the two children in the morning, encouraged other children to get off the streets, and as far as I can ascertain, generally did his best to ensure that no children got hurt. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting that this makes him in any way a good guy, but what it does do is suggest a degree of mental capacity rather than the frequently implied mindless crazy person no longer capable of rational thought. Were they analyzing this later because he didn't kill himself? I don't remember this at all. I don't remember. Th- These were a very long time ago. I, this was before I was born? 1980s? I'm sorry, I forgot the date this was happening. Uh, but so he, he went to court and they analyzed this. Surely just, I don't know, I always feel like, don't these people kill themselves at the end? Isn't that what usually happens? And sometimes they're a coward and they don't. I mean, you're already a coward, you're shooting innocent people, but you know what I mean. Another person who was incredibly lucky that day was Dorothy Smith, a 77-year-old, partially deaf Hungerford resident. Upon hearing several loud bangs, she went out into the street to investigate. With an apparent lack of any idea as to what sort of danger she was in, she shouted at Ryan, in that way only certain old ladies can. Is that you making that noise? You're frightening everybody to death! Stop it, you stupid bugger! She would later tell reporters that he looked at her with extremely vacant eyes before heading off down a footpath that led to Hungerford Common. His next victim, 14-year-old Lisa Middenhall, was crouching by her front door as she removed her shoes. Ryan smiled at her before shooting her four times in the legs and stomach. Luckily, she was able to drag herself inside and close the door before he could finish her off, but although she would survive, she would sustain life-changing injuries. The next person, Kenneth Clements, wasn't so lucky. I don't, I don't like the use of the word day, uh, lucky, Dave. You use lucky a lot here. None of these people are lucky. They're just less unfortunate than some others. 
Because lucky has this almost has this positive connotation, and it's like you're not lucky if you're you get you don't get you miss a plane that's going to crash. You just missed the plane. Is that luck? I guess it is luck, but it feels weird to use a positive word in this context. I filtered it out a few times so far. Maybe it is the appropriate word to use. It just feels weird to use it, doesn't it? Whilst walking along the footpath with his family in the opposite direction to Ryan, he was shot once in the head and died instantly. The rest of his family were literally forced to run for their lives. At this point, you might be wondering, well, where the f*** the police? Um... I guess not quite yet, because I'm not sure of the time frame on this, but it could all have happened very, very quickly, and they don't exactly know where, it, where he is. Plenty of people have called the police, but he's moved on ra- rather rapidly. I mean, hadn't they, be aler- hadn't they been alerted to the fact that there was an active shooter in the area some time ago? Well, the police had a problem. Although they were able to monitor Ryan's movements from a helicopter and put roadblocks in place to prevent anybody entering or leaving Hungerford, the nearest armed response unit was several hours' drive away. Are you having a laugh? Wait, I ass- I was just thinking for a moment, like surely before, you know, did the police never have guns in the UK? This is all before I, when I was born. Like police have never had guns in my living memory. So like, you know, regular bobbies on the street. So even when people could buy and get a license for a handgun and assault rifle, the police still didn't have guns. They didn't have more guns. I assume that everyone got rid of the guns at the same time. How can an armed response unit be several hours' drive away from anywhere? What if they have a situation like this? That's just wild. Furthermore, the Hungerford Police Station was, at the time, undergoing serious restoration, and because of this, had only two working telephone lines. Not only were these lines quickly overwhelmed by people calling in to report shootings, members of the police had to deal with a massive influx of calls from members of the press, many of whom would later flock to Hungerford, not only getting in the way of vital emergency services, but in some cases even unlawfully obtaining access to crime scenes by pretending to be forensic investigators. Oh, media, just don't go too far, you know? It's like... Press is generally good, but then you get these situations where it's like, press, stop it, you're being a dick. How I feel about these figurative pieces of excrement cannot adequately be described with the use of mere words. Um, again, coming down so hard on the press when there's a guy who's shooting kids running around. <laughs> yeah, it's not cool of the press, but uh, they are just doing their job. Okay, the person pretending to be a forensic thing is is going too far, but they don't know they're clogging up the phone lines. They don't know there's only two. It's their job to phone up and ask what's going on. Once the police were finally able to spread the word, one constable Roger Brereton, who, upon hearing what was happening, drove straight to the danger zone in order to assist in any way that he could, was killed on the spot when Ryan fired 23 rounds into his patrol car. This was still not enough to slake his thirst for blood. Now smiling to himself as if this was just another day in the rifle range, Ryan fired a further 11 rounds into the next car that he saw. The occupants, Linda and Alison Chapman, both sustained serious injuries, but would ultimately survive the attack. Having now returned to the area near his former home, Ryan shot and killed his neighbor, Abdul Khan, as he mowed his lawn before, before turning his gun on Alan Lepetit, a family friend who had installed the security locker in which Ryan was obligated to store his firearms as part of the terms of his licensing certificates. Although he was shot three times, including once in the back, Lepetit oh, would make a full recovery after the incident. In an attempt to spread even more panic and despair, Bear. Ryan's next target was an ambulance that had been dispatched to one of the many 999 calls made by both the victims and concerned local citizens. Bro, you're shooting an ambulance? I mean, I understand. It's just like, I feel like there's like just levels of depravity, right? And then it's like you're literally shooting at the people who come to rescue injured people. F*** you. Although on this occasion his bullets failed to find a human target, paramedic Hazel Hassler was injured by broken glass. This prompted the ambulance driver, Linda Bright, to reverse the vehicle and drive away from the scene. The fire brigade faced a similar problem. Although the fire iron started in his own home now spread to, had now spread to several surrounding houses, fire engines were prevented from reaching the rapidly spreading blaze because of fears that the driver and operators may also find themselves in mortal danger. At the time, the danger was still very real. Ryan's next victims, Ivor Jackson and George White, were both shot as they drove past him in the street. Ivor had received a phone call from his wife telling him what had happened, and George had offered to give him a ride home from work so that he could be with her. Ivor would miraculously go on to survive, but George, who was driving, would be killed by a combination of gunshot wounds to the chest and injuries sustained when the car struck the same abandoned police vehicle that Ryan had previously fired upon. As the monster stood surveying his own homemade horror movie set, his mother, Dorothy Ryan, the only person he ever loved, pulled up in the now almost unrecognizable street where a house used to be. Catching sight of her son, standing in the middle of the street and holding a gun, she called out to him, Stop it, Michael. 
Why are you doing this? Without answering her, or indeed showing her any sign of recognition or emotion, Ryan pointed his gun at his mother and pulled the trigger three times, hitting her twice in the stomach and once in the leg. As she lay face down on the road, he calmly approached her and shot her twice more in the back at point-blank range, killing her instantly. Although in sight of several unarmed police officers, and with a PA system of the hovering helicopter instructing him to put down his weapons, Ryan simply walked away from his latest victim. At 1.30pm, almost two hours after Ryan began his murderous rampage, the armed response unit finally arrived in Hungerford. Sadly, whilst the authorities were regrouping and getting organized, more lives were going to be lost. 71-year-old Betty Tolliday, who, believing the loud bangs to be children letting off firecrackers, went out into her garden to investigate, uh, was shot once by Ryan. She would survive, but the damage caused by the single bullet would cause her to lose the use of her leg. 26-year-old Francis Butler, who was out walking his dog in the Hungerford Memorial Gardens, was shot three times and died at the scene. Marcus Bernard, a local taxi driver who was going to visit his wife and newborn son at the hospital, was shot in the head and killed after briefly slowing his car in order to try and see what was happening. After killing Marcus, eyewitnesses claimed that Ryan Starr seemed to have a brief moment of clarity. He looked disgustedly at the rifle in his hands before hurling it to the ground and looking around as if seeing everything clearly for the first time. Unfortunately, this brief moment of lucidity didn't last very long, and he quickly retrieved the rifle and started walking away from the center of town. Although at this point, he must have been fully aware that armed response units would shortly be in pursuit, he still took the time to engage in the hunt, shooting out and slightly injuring Anne Honeybone as she passed him in her car before opening fire on John Storms, a local repairman who was sitting in his parked van at the side of the road. Ryan's first shot hit John in the face and he took cover beneath the dashboard. Ryan approached the van, but as he was reloading, a local builder, Bob Barkley, dragged John from the van and into his home. Deprived of his kill, Ryan next turned his attention to the car of Douglas and Kathleen Wainwright, the parents of a local policeman who were driving into town to visit him. Douglas was killed instantly and Kathleen sustained serious injuries. In a bizarre twist of fate, which I'm sure will haunt the aforementioned policeman until the end of his days, it had been he who had signed off on the paperwork that Ryan submitted in order to obtain a modified firearms license. It was this license that allowed Ryan to own the high-powered assault rifles that had caused so much devastation that day. I don't know. I feel like when you have situations like this, it's like you do the best that you do what you, you know you're doing at the time. It's like, yeah, I made a decision that was based on the best information that I had at the time. And at the time, I felt it was the right decision. I don't think that something like that would haunt me too badly. I could see, you know, it's like, you know, all those tiny little things that you can change in your life and do differently. I don't often think about it because you're often making the best decision that you can at the time. And it might not be the right decision. It might end up being a huge mistake, but you don't want to give your past self too much of a hard time, you know. Using one of these assault rifles, an AK-47, Ryan next shot and killed van driver Eric Vardy when he was on his way to pick up an order, and Sandra Hill, who was doing nothing more sinister than taking a relaxed afternoon drive while listening to some music. Perhaps deciding that he needed a bit more of a defensible position, our killer forced his way into the home of Victor and Myrtle Gibbs. Victor did his best to shield the wheelchair user Myrtle, but it would do no good. Ryan killed them as casually as he had killed so many others that day. From the relative safety of the Gibbs house, he continued to unload his arsenal of weapons upon the people of his hometown. His bullets injured both a man and a woman living in nearby houses, the names of whom I've been unable to find. He also shot at another passing car, killing the driver, Ian Plale, who had been visiting Hungerford with his wife and children. Miraculously, the three passengers were completely unharmed. Before leaving his temporary bolt hole, Brian would shoot one more person. This was George Noon, who in spite of being shot in both the shoulder and the eye, was also fortunate enough to survive. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Final hiding place. At approximately 2 p.m., Ryan was observed by another Hungerford resident, Bert Watley, entering the John O'Gaunt Secondary School, which was, most fortunately, closed for the summer holidays. Bert would later tell reporters that he had his head held down very, very low. You could just see the back of his neck. He didn't turn around, and he was walking very slowly, and he had a handgun in his left hand, heading to the ground, and a rifle over his right shoulder. 
Bert immediately alerted the authorities, and the school was quickly surrounded by armed police. A standoff had been achieved. Although the nine officers that surrounded the school were only armed with 38 Smith & Wesson's pea shooters in comparison to what Ryan was packing, at least they knew where he was, and with a bit of luck, they would be able to keep him there and negotiate his surrender. Knowing where Ryan was provided one extra benefit. Finally, emergency crews could tend to the wounded and put out fires without risk of being fired upon. Over a period of 90 minutes, Sergeant Paul Brightwell engaged in a long conversation with Michael Ryan. During that conversation, the sergeant would describe Ryan as being fairly lucid and easy to talk to. He kept asking about his mother and whether or not she was okay. Although Sergeant Brightwell was pleased to have established the dialogue, for him, there was only one thing to talk about, and that was Ryan's surrender. Every time this subject was broached, Ryan declared that he was not going to come out until he had received news of his mother. Sergeant Brightwell told him that he did not know if she had survived and he was trying to find out. You shot her twice in the back at point-blank range after shooting her three times before. What what are you thinking? As the end neared, Ryan shouted that he wished he'd stayed in bed that morning before saying, It's funny, I killed all those people, but I don't have the guts to blow my, bra- my own brains out. By 6.52pm, it was all over. Ryan asked for the time at about 6.48, and after that, he spoke no more. At 6.52, Brightwell heard a single shot from inside the classroom where Ryan was hiding. Initially, the police were concerned that this may be some sort of ruse, so they flew the helicopter past the window in an attempt to confirm whether or not he was actually dead. Unfortunately, nobody on board was able to see him, so a different tactic had to be devised. In the end, a member of the police tactical force climbed onto the roof of the building and with the aid of a mirror on a long pole was finally able to see into the room. In the corner, close to another window and very obviously dead, sat Ryan. Although the police were anxious to completely secure the area, there was one problem that needed to be addressed. During his conversation with Sergeant Brightwell, Ryan had said that he was also in possession of a fragmentation grenade. And so it was, with some trepidation, that members of the tactical squad entered the room that contained Ryan's body and carefully searched for explosive booby traps. Fortunately for those individuals, like many things that came out of Ryan's mouth, the existence of the hand grenade was purely fictional. And so it was that at just after 7pm, on August the 19th, 1987, approximately seven hours after Michael Ryan fired the first shots, the Hungerford Massacre was over. During those seven hours, Ryan had fired 133 shots, killed 16 people, and injured a further 15. Although the shooting was over, the effects of what happened during those seven hours still clearly resonate throughout Hungerford to this day. Analysis and Reforms Looking back at it now, it's hard to understand how an individual such as Michael Ryan was ever permitted any sort of firearm. Unfortunately, the keywords there are looking back. Hindsight is so often used as a stick with which to beat people of the past for perceived stupidity that in many instances the bigger picture is lost. Should that police officer who authorized Ryan's firearm certificate have rejected his application? I'm sure he thinks so now, especially as that modification ultimately led to the death of his own father. However, within the confines of the law, he was given no grounds on which he could have denied Ryan his modified license. At the time Ryan had submitted the application, he had no previous trouble with the law, no registered mental health issues, and by joining a local gun club where many people would vouch for his competence, he had built himself a completely plausible reputation as a responsible gun owner. Although many locals would later describe Ryan as a strange individual, nobody was ever concerned enough to mention this to the authorities. Therefore, not knowing Ryan personally, little if any blame can be laid directly at the feet of this one police officer. Yes, entirely agree. You can't deny someone a gun license just based on them. Well, he seems a little bit odd. He's a bit of a liar. He tells tall tales. That's not enough, I'm assuming. There's law is rarely grey. The problem, as is so often the case, was not with the implementation of the law, but rather with the law itself. If anything good came out of the Hungerford Massacre, it was the fact that more and more people around the UK began to question whether or not it was a good idea for members of the public to be able to own military-style assault weapons. It seems like such a bizarre thing. I mean, the answer should be, of course not. Yes, I am aware of the tired old NRA-fueled adage that people need guns to protect themselves and protect their families, and I am somewhat reluctantly not entirely opposed to this viewpoint. Me neither. People can own guns if they want to. I live in a country which has very similar gun laws to the United States. And I have no problem with that. I think owning guns is fine. I think shooting guns. I enjoy shooting guns. I enjoy guns. Um, Do I think there should be restrictions on what guns I can have? And 
um, all, all sorts of do I think there should be licensings? Absolutely. I do often wonder, however, just how many people you would have to have pissed off over the years in order to genuinely believe that you would require a Kalashnikov and several magazines of ammunition in order to defend your home. In most cases, I would have thought that a six-shot revolver would be more than adequate for this purpose. Entirely agree. As a direct result of people asking this question and campaigning for change, under the Firearms Act 1988, semi-automatic and pump-action rifles and shotguns were banned, except those chambered for 22 ammunition. Uh, wait, that's not true for shotguns, is it? Shotguns don't take 22. So semi-automatic and pump-action rifles and shotguns were banned. Okay. Can you have a pump-action? Can you have a semi-automatic 22? Uh, I think... I don't think so. The Act also prohibited more dangerous forms of ammunition, such as that which explodes or contains noxious substances. In addition, shotguns with barrels of 24 inches or longer required a firearm certificate, which is theoretically much more difficult to obtain than a simple shotgun license. Interestingly, the original recommendations for the amendment of the Firearms Act were much more stringent and would have resulted in many more weapons being removed from sale to the public. These strict reforms received some opposition, and rather than attempting to engage in some sort of useful debate, the government at the time, who were keen to be seen as doing something proactive in the wake of the Hungerford Massacre, forced through this watered-down legislation. It is probable that the gun ownership laws within the UK may have remained unchanged to this day, if it were not for what happened next. Some eight years after the 1988 amendment, on the 13th of March 1996, members of the United Kingdom would once again come under fire from a crazed individual with legal access to a collection of deadly weapons. Part 2. The Dunblane Massacre when Ron Taylor, the head teacher at Dunblane Primary School, set out for work on the morning of the 13th of March 1996, he believed that it would just be an ordinary day at the office. In an interview given 20 years later, Ron recalls that it was a beautiful morning. It was very bright. It was frosty. The snowdrops were out in profusion. There was even some snow on the grounds. There was a real hint of summer to come. It was beautiful. Ron had truly no idea of the events of that day that would change not only his life, but the lives of everybody in the school, everybody in the local area, and those of hundreds of thousands of people across the UK. Upon arriving at the school, Ron set about his usual business of the day. At approximately 9.30am, he had a series of loud bangs. Briefly, Ron attributed these bangs to some sort of building work. Although, as far as he was aware, no such work had been scheduled for that day. He just assumed that he had either been told and forgotten about it, or somebody had neglected to inform him. Either way, no big deal. Right? Well, wrong. About a minute later, a member of staff burst into Ron's office and told him that somebody was shooting in the gym. Immediately, he sprinted from his office and headed in the direction of the gymnasium. What he found can only be described as utter carnage. Fifteen, five, and six-year-old children, and one teacher had been shot to death and many more were seriously injured, and the shooter lay dying from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. I don't understand the previous one, but uh, just... It's f***ing children, man. Like, it's children. They're five. They're six years old. I just don't get it. I just don't get it. There's... there's I don't get it. How is somebody capable of such a heinous crime? allowed access to firearms, and to quote the condolence cards that would later be left outside the school, why them? In order to attempt to answer these questions, we must take a closer look at the individual behind this despicable crime, disgraced former scout leader and suspected paedophile Thomas Hamilton. Born on the 10th of May 1952, Thomas Hamilton was the only son of Thomas Watt and Agnes Hamilton. Thomas Jr. never got to know his father, as at the time of his birth had already left his wife for another woman and filed for divorce. Agnes was, at the time, working as a hotel chambermaid, and money was extremely tight, so when her adoptive parents offered her the opportunity to go and live with them, she gratefully accepted. Originally, she planned to live with them for a while in order to save some money before going out again on her own. When Thomas reached the age of two, something rather strange would happen. Agnes's parents would officially adopt him, and he would be raised to believe that not only were they his biological parents, but his mother was, in fact, his older sister. That doesn't say, I mean, it's, it's strange, but it's not the strangest thing in the world. The truth would not be revealed to him until he was about the age of 22. Try as I might, I've not been able to find any information on why this bizarre deception was carried out. I suppose that it's possible it might have been done to avoid awkward conversations as to the whereabout of Thomas, his biological father, but if that's the case, it seems to be rather extreme. As I said, this is mere speculation on my part. I just speculate that they wanted him to have as ordinary childhood as possible, and that he's not going to know the difference. Like, his mum had him as a single mother very young. And maybe her parents were like, well, if we just pretend he's our son instead of our grandson, 
he can have a relatively normal upbringing and we'll tell him when he's old enough to be able to mentally handle it and i think 22 is quite reasonable for that am i I, (laughs) is it weird that i don't find this as strange as dave during his time in education thomas appears to have performed fairly well academically however he would discover his two true passions during his early teenage years these passions took the form of both a local rifle club and also the boys brigade what started out as relatively harmless hobbies would quickly become an obsession. Around 1976, Hamilton applied for and was granted a firearm certificate, which permitted him to own, among other things, a large collection of handguns. As well as spending what has been described as an unhealthy amount of time at the local gun club practicing marksmanship, Hamilton also became heavily involved with the local Boy Scouts. In 1973, he achieved his position of assistant scout leader of a troop based in the town of Stirling. It was during this time working with the scouts that the first alarm bells began to ring. Do you get paid? If you're like in charge of this, is that a job or is that like a, it's a volunteer thing, right? Because it's only like occasional stuff on, in the, I was never in the scouts. I was in the, like we had cadets at school. I was in the cadets. Spent time shooting lots of guns um, or like not lots of guns, but the same gun lots of times. Um, so I was never in the, the scouts or anything, but that's volunteer, I think. So he must have a job and he's buying all these guns. During one weekend trip to the Scottish Highlands, an event which was designed to test the survival skills of the young boys, Hamilton is reported to have gone far beyond the recommended limits put in place by the Scout Association. As a result of this, many of the boys returned from the trip in very poor health and in some cases suffering from hypothermia. <laughs> I just we went on when I was at school, we went on one trip. I, it was it was somewhere to somewhere in Wales, and it was November, and we were hiking the whole day, and then we were camping at night, and it was it was bloody freezing. And I remember just like not having a sleeping bag that was warm enough and just shivering my ass off that whole night. And uh, I don't think anyone went to hospital the year I went. But the next year, like a bunch of people had to go to hospital because they got hypothermia. And then the school said that the the guy who ran that winter camping trip could no longer run the winter camping trip because it's it's not a good look to have children going to hospital with hypothermia. <laughs> it was fun though. No, it was horrible. It was cold. On at least two other occasions, Hamilton took groups of boys to the highlands on the pretext of engaging in walking expeditions. Although adequate sleeping arrangements should have been made, he claimed that on these occasions the venues had been double booked and that he and the children were forced to sleep huddled together in the back of his van in freezing temperatures. Although it is possible that double booking could happen once, in my opinion it's highly unlikely that it would happen several times. I get the feeling this dude just likes sleeping in the back of his van with kids, which is weird. Members of the Scout Association appear to have shared my opinions upon looking into the matter a little more closely, they discovered that on both occasions, Hamilton not attempted to make any accommodation reservations at all. Parents and scout leaders alike were outraged that he had placed these children in such danger, and Hamilton was asked to resign from his post. Yeah, that's one of those, like, look, Hamilton, we're going to ask you to resign, and if you don't resign, we're going to fire you, which is going to look worse. So why do people, why do they do that? Just fire people. This guy clearly needs firing, because he shouldn't have another job like this. Don't ask, don't be like, oh, no, I resigned. I had the opportunity to resign. I resigned. It was my own volition. Just fire the fucker. Appearing to genuinely believe that he had done nothing to warrant this, Hamilton protested vociferously. Nevertheless, the then-county commissioner of the Scouts, Mr. Brian D. Fairgreave, decided that the Scouts be a much better and safer place without Hamilton and contacted him directly, instructing him to return his warrant book. Fairgreave would also write to the Scottish Scout headquarters in order to explain why he had made the decision. As this letter contains several important observations, I've included it in full. It reads, While unable to give concrete evidence against this man, I feel that too many incidents relate to him, such that I'm far from happy about having his association with scouts. He has displayed irresponsible acts on outdoor activities by taking young favorite scouts for weekends during the winter and sleeping in his van, the excuse for these outings being hillwalking expeditions. The lack of precautions for such outdoor activity displays either irresponsibility or an ulterior motive for sleeping with the boys. His personality displays evidence of persecution complex, coupled with rather grandiose delusions of his own abilities. As a doctor, and with my clinical acumen, I am suspicious of his moral intentions towards boys. Oh my god, dude. (laughs) Why did you- If this was going through your fucking minds, why were you like, let's ask him to resign? How about fire him- and also send that letter to the fucking police, just in case. There probably is nothing to go on. It's probably nothing. They're not going to be able to do anything. But just so you know, just, just why not? 
just drop them in the CC. I mean, I know they didn't have email or whatever, but do whatever the postal version of that is. After his numerous appeals were rejected, Hamilton divided his time between working at the DIY shop that had opened in 1972, continuing to practice marksmanship, and setting up and running at least 15 different boys clubs specializing in shooting, football, gymnastics, and outdoor pursuits. How about we don't let that guy work with kids? What do you do in that situation? Like, I feel I've got kids. If I was going to sign them up for some sort of shooting club, I would want it to be official enough that the people who are running that shooting club have been, like, vetted so we know that they're not weirdos, right? Or I'd be very keen to do it if it was associated with, you know, the school rather than just some dude or, like, some official organization. Because, although, Jesus Christ, weren't the scouts just sued in America for, like, hundreds of millions of dollars or something because of all of the, uh, the dodginess that was going on? I don't know enough about that story to, like, elaborate further, but there was some weird shit going down, wasn't there? But still, I feel that the risk there is lower than the risk with, like, this random weirdo dude who's like, yeah, yeah, now I've got a gymnastic club for boys. <laughs> It's fucking weird, bro. Although the scouting organization had done everything they possibly could to keep him away from young children, Hamilton had found another way. To begin with, these clubs were very popular, with some of them attracting as many as 70 members, including at one point professional tennis player Andy Murray, who was a student at Dunblane School at the time of the massacre. No, he fucking wasn't. Jesus Christ, really? That's intense. Fun fact, Andy Murray is my exact age. <laughs> He's born on it. I think that's true. I'm pretty sure that's true. Uh, just let me check. I think he's born on exactly my birthday. Why would, when I search Andy Murray, would it come up with Andrew Murray, minister? Some, like, South African dude. Everyone just wants Andy Murray, the tennis player. What are you talking about? Yeah, he's exactly my age. May 15th, 1987. There you go. It appears that none of these clubs remained particularly popular for long. When asked about this, Hamilton would say that it was down to the children's lack of discipline and commitment. He would frequently engage in long rants about how weak and unhealthy the children of the time were, often adding that he hated fat kids and despised parents for constantly feeding them junk food. In actuality, the reason the popularity of his clubs declined was a very simple fact, which could be summed up in only five words. His behavior towards the children. Oh, what? It was? Also, his behavior towards the children could totally count as him being like, hey, 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 you fat fuck, I hate you and your parents. That's also shitty and a reason that the the membership would decline. But I also get the feeling that there's, uh, there's other sorts of uh, behaviors that probably caused it to decline. So let's see what those were. Love this. Love it when we go these places. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Parents became increasingly concerned with the way that Hamilton was interacting with the boys. As one parent put it, quote, the entire evening seemed to be based around Hamilton shouting at the boys. It was less of an enjoyable extracurricular activity and more of a series of regimented military drills. Oh, okay. I thought there was going to be, uh, more weirdness going on. Furthermore, many concerns were raised with regards to just what Hamilton got up to on his weekend trips away. According to the mother of one attendee, Hamilton would instruct the boy boys to rub sunblock onto his naked body. Well, there we go. Several other boys claimed that during the evening at these summer camps, Hamilton would whip them with a metal rod before rubbing them vigorously with lotion. How is this guy not getting on that sexual offenders register yet just get him on there and keep him away from all children for the rest of his life let's put a gps tracker in his bones let's go how long until we, can do they have gps trackers that can go in people's bones yet i'm looking forward to that perhaps more concerning were the hundreds of photographs and videos that hamilton took during those club meetings why is he not on a register Insisting that the boys only wore tight-fitting swimming trunks during most of these meetings, Hamilton would frequently take, take both photographs and video footage, and the majority of these focused solely on the swimming trunks area. What the fuck? Get him on a register! When questioned as to why exactly he needed so many photographs of the boys, Hamilton responded that it wasn't entirely necessary for advertising his clubs and that any parent was welcome to have copies of the images. I'd be like, I don't want a copy. I don't want a copy of that. I don't want that. I don't want, what I want you to do is uh, do not pass go, do not collect £200, go to fucking prison. Go straight to jail. Although some of these images were undoubtedly used for advertising purposes, Hamilton put many of the others to a different use. Hundreds of pictures of young, scantily clad boys adorned the walls of his home, and he kept many more in labelled photo albums. Of course, with so much controversy surrounding him, that's one way of putting it. Hamilton's activities have been reported to the local police. Excellent! However, he was always incredibly careful to make sure that, although questionable, his actions never actually broke the law. Bro, surely... I mean, this is not decent. 
Surely there's rules against this shit. He, they're, he's, they're rubbing lotion into his naked body while he's taking pictures of them wearing swimming shorts. If there's not a crime there, there needs to be a crime. In a letter written by an unnamed police officer's senior colleague, the officer writes, Mr. Hamilton has undoubtedly sailed very close to the wind for many years as regarding the inappropriateness of his methods of alleged tuition of very young, immature, and unsuspecting boys of primary school age. That is, kids younger than 11 Americans. I'm always so confused when I read about your preschool, no, what's it called? Junior high, middle school, senior school, high school. I, I'm always like, I have no idea what age that is. Let me explain. Primary school, um, four to 11. Secondary school, 11 to 18. Easy. University, 18 to 21, but I think that's about the same. Concerns, and also then they're adults and they can do whatever they want. You want to be photographed in like really tight trousers when you're 18 or 19? Great, have at it. That's fine. It should be illegal under that age and it should be double illegal for primary school age kids and how is there not a law he is breaking what the fuck britain <laughs> there must be a law about that now surely concerns would also be raised with regards to hamilton's unhealthy obsession with his firearms collection not only would he frequently allow young children to handle and fire his guns something that he was not permitted to do within the terms of his firearms certificate but he also seemed to get some sort of perverse excitement from talking about his guns or showing them to children one boy a former member of a football club run by hamilton said i can remember once he was in i was in the minibus mr hamilton asked us to guess what kind of club he was a member of we couldn't guess, and eventually he told us he was in a gun club. I asked him what he shot, and he told me he liked to shoot moving things. He told us he had a lot of guns, but to tell nobody. It has also been alleged that during some of his summer camps, Hamilton would drop a group of boys off on a small island, provide them with guns, and encourage them to shoot at any animal they might find. Bro, come on. Let's, let's, let's get him for that, at least. That sounds definitely definitely illegal. Let's get him in prison for that, and then when they're sentencing him, just bear in mind that he's also a fucking weirdo and make that sentence real long and keep him away from children forever somehow. Endangering children with guns. That should be enough to get you on some register to keep you away from children, even if it's not the real reason we're keeping you away from the children. Several people, including one police officer, attempted to have Hamilton stripped of his firearm certificate, but even after the police received reports of Hamilton pointing an unloaded pistol at a man who was visiting his home and pulling the trigger, that's a, that's a, that's assault, no? Come on. That's, 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 get him in court. Getting that, getting those guns taken away. No action was ever taken against him due to lack of evidence. The former deputy chief constable of Central Scotland, Douglas McMurdo, uh, would later explain to an inquiry that he had no reason to believe that Hamilton was a violent or dangerous person. Going on to say, nor did he do anything which would have given given the evidence to revoke his firearm certificate. What? What are you talking about? McMurdo would also claim that five further firearm incidents involving Hamilton were not reported to the police until after the shooting. With more and more people becoming increasingly concerned about Hamilton, he himself retreated to an expertly sculpted cocoon of denial. Claiming that everybody was out to get him and destroy his reputation, he began a ferocious letter-writing campaign, during which he wrote to, among other people, patron of the Scouts Association, Queen Elizabeth II. In this letter, he complains of unfair treatment from the Scouts Association and claims that due to jealousy about his popularity with the boys, a small number of Scout officials had not only removed him from the association, but through several covert channels, had attempted to block him from working with children in any capacity. And those are the people that we'll call heroes. The following is a small extract from that letter. Over the past 20 years of youth work, this has caused me untold damage, including council, police, and social work investigations, where they acted as a direct result of information received in absolute confidence from officials of the Scout Association. Um, what? Dude, what are you talking about? So, someone from the Scout Association tells the council or police or social workers that you're a sicko, and then they come and investigate you. Where's the privilege there? Where's the confidence? There isn't any. They were telling them on the idea that they would come and hassle you. That was the whole point of them telling them. Uh, sorry, it continues. Any subsequent investigation was instigated on a whim and without proper complaint, cause, or justification. For the purpose of the police complaints procedure, the investigative skills of the police are put into reverse. It seems to be a tactic of the police during any investigation to spread innuendo to as many people as possible and in such a way to cause maximum damage, and then when their investigation comes to nothing, they do nothing about retracting their accusations. This has probably been the most damaging of all on the part of the police and council. Um, yeah, dude. Uh, sorry, it ends there. Yeah, the reason 
that they're spreading that innuendo and talking about it is because they're like, well, we can't get him on those images of kids in tight swimming costumes that he's hanging up around his fucking house. But what we can do is make people aware that this guy's a weirdo and they shouldn't work with him. The reason this is happening to you, dude, is because you're a fucking weirdo. All right? It's not complicated. You don't need a big brain to figure it out. Hamilton would also write a number of letters in which he described his anger at no longer being allowed to use the school premises for his clubs. Mate, you should not be allowed anywhere near school premises. I'm not going to include any of those letters. It is enough to say that they contained more of the same complaints that he had sent to the Queen. He was being persecuted due to jealousy, he had never done anything wrong, the police were out to get him, that sort of thing. As his animosity towards generally everybody grew, it appears that his plan for revenge on the society that had so wronged him began to take shape. It is possible that he had been planning his attack for up to two years before it happened. One of the few remaining members of his boys' club would later say that Hamilton was obsessed with the goings-on at the school. He would ask about routines. He would ask what classes used the gymnasium and when. And by the time that fateful day rolled around, he possessed an extremely detailed working knowledge of almost everything that happened at Dunblane Primary School. The Massacre On the morning of the 13th of March 1996, Thomas Hamilton drove from his house to Dunblane Primary School a journey of about five miles. He carried with him four handguns, two 9mm Browning pistols, two Smith & Wesson M19 357 Magnum revolvers along with 743 rounds of ammunition and a pair of pliers. Upon arriving at the school, he used the pliers to cut the telephone lines before firing off a few random shots in the playgrounds and forcing his way past two staff members. Gaining access to the building via a side door, he calmly walked along a corridor that took him past the empty dining room before running into the gymnasium, which at that time he knew would contain a class of five- and six-year-olds along with their teacher, Mrs. Gwen Mayer. Hamilton's first victims were the two teachers in the room, Mrs. Mary Blake and Mrs. Eileen Harlett, both of whom he shot and seriously injured. After that, he turned his guns on the children. As these terrified youngsters frantically attempted to hide beneath tables, under chairs, and in storage cupboards, Hamilton casually strolled around the room in a rough circle, shooting and killing many of them at point-blank range. Once he believed he had killed them all, he stepped out into the corridor and opened fire on another group of children, injuring the teacher who accompanied them. After this, he went back to the gymnasium, walked out of a fire escape, and opened fire on a mobile classroom. Fortunately, the teacher had been working with the class inside the temporary structure and already figured out what was going on and instructed the pupils to hide under the tables. This quick thinking definitely saved at least one life. Although many of the bullets that were later recovered had hit walls or bits of equipment, one bullet passed through the back of a chair, which seconds earlier had been occupied by a student. After unleashing that final spray of bullets, Hamilton returned to the gymnasium, and it was at this point that this unbelievable coward placed the barrel of one of his own guns into his mouth and pulled the trigger. As he lay amongst the bodies of those innocent, defenseless children, the door to the gymnasium would fly open, once again marking the arrival of the previously mentioned headmaster Ron Taylor. He was followed shortly after by an off-duty police officer who had been dropping his children off at the nursery that morning. The following description is taken from the report that would be filed by that police officer. I entered and saw carnage. A flurry of thoughts and feelings came on me as I was aware of a strong smell of gun smoke. I also formed the opinion that all the children I saw were dead, as all were motionless. I saw a group of bodies to my immediate right at the entrance doors where I stood. That was the group where the teacher, deceased mayor, was that died. I can recall that her body was on top of other children. I saw that they were dressed in gym kit, blue t-shirts, and dark shorts. I formed the opinion that they were all dead. I also saw a group to my left, halfway up the left side of the hall. They consisted of about four or five further children wearing exactly the same state of dress. I formed the opinion they were all dead. The reason that I included this extract is that it confirms without a doubt the unbelievable selflessness and bravery of Mrs. Gwen Mayer. Although faced with certain death, neither she nor any of the other teachers attempted to run or save their own lives, instead attempting to shield their students from this brutal attacker. Ron Taylor, who never spoke publicly about what had happened until 20 years later when the BBC released a documentary to mark the anniversary, described walking into that gymnasium as a vision of hell on earth. He said, There was an incredible silence. The air was thick with smoke, the smell of cordite. And I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was unimaginably horrible to see 
children dying in front of you. After instructing one teacher to remove four traumatized but still walking children from the gymnasium, he and many others did their best to administer whatever care they could, whilst also trying to provide comfort to those who were taking their last breaths. Once the survivors had been taken to the hospital, the police asked Ron to re-enter the gymnasium in order to identify the bodies of the children who had not survived. He told the BBC that this was particularly difficult, as they had only been at school for a short while he was not familiar with all of them and had to enlist the help of another member of staff. Ron would later be held as a hero for both his actions on that day and the calm and stoic way that he dealt with the press. Sadly, this is an accolade that he does not believe he deserves. Even after all these years, he's still racked with guilt, believing that he should have done more to prevent this from happening. He told the makers of the aforementioned documentary that in a locked box in his cupboard under the stairs, he keeps a collection of newspaper articles, along with his own detailed accounts of the events that took place on this day. Even after all these years, he's never read this account. In his own words, it's pretty easy to keep that box locked. It is much more difficult to keep the box in my head locked. Ron, it's not, it's not your fault, man. Like, fuck that guy. And that's all, that's all, man. It's, it's not you. The following is a list of people who tragically lost their lives that day. They're all aged five. The last one is aged six. Victoria Clydesdale. Sophie North. Ross Irvin. Maria McBeath. Melissa Curry. Megan Turner. Kevin Hassel, John Petrie, Joanna Ross, Hannah Scott, Emma Crozier, Emily Morton, David Kerr, Charlotte Dunn, and Brett McKinnon. Afterwards. Although the parents and wider families did their best to rebuild their shattered lives after this tragedy, the BBC documentary shows that some memories are as fresh now as if they happened only yesterday. Isabel Wilson, mother of Maria McBeath, remembers the first thing that she saw upon returning home that day was Maria's school shoes. I picked them up and threw them in the bin. I just couldn't look at those empty little shoes at the bottom of the stairs and knew that she was never coming back. Although several families would move away from Dunblane, many stayed in order to support one another. Isabel said, We met once a week, and it was terribly important because you could say anything. Their support was key to my survival. Moving on was incredibly difficult for those fortunate enough to survive. In an article published one year after the massacre, Robert Weir, father of Stuart Weir, a six-year-old boy who was shot through the leg by Hamilton, talked about how difficult it was to tell his son just how many of his friends had been lost. He was sitting in the chair, in much a state of disbelief as we were. He's a bright wee boy. From the start, he knew the severity of it all, but telling him what had happened was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. Tell my son that his pals were dead. He was very quiet. The tears came later. When talking about attending the funerals of all of those that had been lost, Robert said, At every funeral, I would stand and look at the coffin and realize that it could have been us. I feel heart sorry for the families who lost their kids. I don't know how they have managed. If it had been me, I would have been in a straight jacket long before now. I have nothing but admiration for these people. They are extraordinary and so strong. As news of what had happened spread quickly, messages of condolence and support poured in from around the world. The entire UK came to a halt in order to observe a minute's silence, and the Queen visited Dunblane Primary School in order to lay a wreath and meet the families and meet the survivors at a nearby hospital. She also sent the following message to the Secretary of State for Scotland the day after the massacre. I was deeply shocked by the appalling news from Dunblane. In asking you to pass my deepest and most heartfelt sympathies to the families of all those who were killed or injured, and to the injured themselves, I am sure I share in the grief and horror of the whole country. Gun Laws Reformed Although the Hungerford Massacre had led to limited gun reform in the United Kingdom, the atrocities committed at Dunblane Primary School sparked fresh debate. Arguments that had previously been used to water down legislation such as this were a one-off were no longer accepted. The Snowdrop Campaign, organized by a group of Dunblane parents in an attempt to ban handgun ownership entirely, was able to obtain 750,000 supporting signatures in just 10 days. This number rose to a million by the time the petition got, got to Parliament in June of 1996. Furthermore, the Cullen Report, commissioned by the government to investigate the massacre and make recommendations on how to proceed, recommended that ownership laws should be tightened. From, at this point, the majority of members of the public were also in favor of a handgun ban, and so the Firearms Amendment Act in 1997 was passed by the Conservative government. This amendment placed an outright ban on all high-caliber handguns, but permitted 22 pistols to be owned, owned and kept at licensed gun clubs. 
Shortly after this, the Conservative Party was swept from power during a landslide victory by the Labour Party, and the new Prime Minister Tony Blair introduced the Firearms Amendment No. 2 Act 1997, which banned public ownership of any handguns. So, was this ban particularly effective? Well, if you take only a casual glance at the statistics, then it would appear that gun crime rose by a rate of approximately 105% over the next four years. However, if we break this down a little, the reason for this increase becomes a little clearer. The definition of gun crime during this period was extremely broad. It included, but was not limited to, any crime in which a gun was present, whether or not that gun was actually fired, any crime in which a pellet gun or air rifle was used, and any crime in which a replica firearm was used. If you remove air-powered weapons and replicas from the statistics, then gun crime did decrease significantly. Furthermore, I'm aware that this will piss off members of the NRA and its supporters, and I don't really care, not wishing to tempt fate, but since 1997, when handguns were banned, there have been exactly no school shootings within the UK. This is only my opinion, but for that result alone, I believe that sacrificing gun ownership was entirely worth it. Yeah, fucking obviously. It's, isn't it just fucking blindingly obvious? I could drone on for hours and hours about the need for US gun reform, how the Second Amendment was written during a time when only a firearm meant possessing a 10-pound one-shot musket, and as such was probably never meant to include a rapid-fire assault weapon or how providing teachers with guns is much more likely to result in more deaths than fewer. However, I think the best way to end this video is with an extract from a letter written by a group of Dunblane parents for students campaigning for tighter laws after the Parkland Florida shooting, and it reads... And we want to reach out and offer our deepest and most heartfelt sympathy to you and your teachers and to all the families and friends of those who died at your school on the 14th of February. We have watched and listened with tremendous admiration as you have spoken out for what you believe should happen now, a significant change of attitude towards the availability of guns in your country. We want you to know that change can happen. It won't be easy, but continue to remind everyone of exactly what happened at your school and of the devastation caused by just one person with one legally owned gun. Never let anyone forget. There will be attempts to deflect you, to divide you, and doubtless to intimidate you. But you've already shown great wisdom and strength. We wish you more of that wisdom and strength for this toughest of tasks, one that will be so important in order to spare more of your fellow Americans from having to suffer the way you have. Wherever you march, wherever you protest, however you campaign for a more sensible approach to gun ownership, we will be there with you in spirit. of being upsold at gyms my guy you're currently a base member for 90 dollars more i can upgrade you to our shred membership for 130 more you'll be a swole member and for just 300 more you'll reach sweat platinum at planet fitness you'll get energy without the upsell never pushy always free fitness training and equipment for every workout it's fitness that fits your budget join planet fitness for just one dollar down and ten dollars a month cancel anytime deal ends friday may 10th see home club for details